COVID-19 has made its way to the Mets as a player and staff member tested positive on Thursday. We discuss what comes next for the Mets after the Subway Series has been postponed this weekend and what a doubleheader-filled week could look like for the team. We also chat with a member of the 2000 Mets that was part of the Subway Series World Series. It's old lefty Glennon Rush. All that and a whole lot more next on Amazing But True from the New York Post. Yo, Mets take the field. So amazing. Amazing but true. Orange and blue. So amazing. Here's the pitch. New York folks, it's out of here. We got you. Welcome to Amazing But True, our New York Mets podcast from the New York Post. That's my co-host and former Met, Nelson Figueroa. I'm Jake Brown. Subscribe to Amazing But True on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Give your boys a five-star rating and write a nice review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram, at FiggyNY and at Jake Brown Radio. Glennon Rush will join us later in the show, but Figgy, a lot of people heard a different version of this episode on Thursday. And of course... In amazing but true fashion, news happened after the episode that one Met player and it seems like a position player, we don't know who, and a staff member have tested positive for COVID-19. Thursday night's game and series finale in Miami was postponed. And now breaking news is the whole Subway series this weekend has been postponed. And something about Miami, man. I know the Marlins, a lot of them got it in Atlanta, but something about that city. I don't know if guys are going to club live when they land on Sunday nights, the only night it's open, but something about Miami and COVID just line up. Yeah, it's unfortunate. And this is always the worst case scenario, right? We said that all it would take is one player, uh, even one staff member who's around the team a lot to be that outbreak monkey and infect everyone. So a good job of containment thus far. Uh, Again, the team has already tested two more times since getting to New York. They tested on arrival yesterday. They tested this morning. And so far, we haven't heard any more positive tests. So that's a good sign. Recently, teams that have tested positive, a a very similar situation just happened where one uh, player tested positive. The containment was done. They missed three of the next four games and the team started playing again. So that's um, again, there's a precedent already set for that. So hopefully there's no more new positive tests. I think they kept back anyone who could have been in contact with the staff member and or position player uh, precautionary measures, of course, and let the rest of the team fly back. That's always scary, though, right? Because we're talking about people are afraid to fly anyway. And now you're going to have a possible uh, infected player on the team plane who may not know he's infected because they're asymptomatic. Most of these guys, that's a scary situation. And that's something that, you know, a lot of people had concern over when they were starting out with the season, uh, the the reboot of the season. And um, some of this is uh, much too close to home and uh, a a harsh reality of what these guys have to go to along with trying to win ballgames. Yeah. And, you know, the wording for it is those traced to be within close contact and some of the guys stayed back they're worried and I can't blame them when you heard first that they are flying back that same night you're like "Eh, that's a little sketchy but I guess you get it Um, and you know the flight was a weird vibe as multiple players of the Mets traveling party staying back in Miami and it's something about Miami man I see I think to myself I could live in Florida I want to live in Florida one day I'd take my talents to South Beach and then you see stories like this you see COVID you see the Florida man where you type in your birthday in Florida man and usually it's like (laughs) someone having sex with a dolphin or something just bizarre and ridiculous that happens down in Florida it makes you double it makes you think twice about living down in Florida or retiring down there one day 
I guess when you retire, all you're doing is really gardening and being boring and playing bingo. Or so, playing with dolphins. Yeah, or playing in all kinds of ways with dolphins. Um, but, like, our age, well, my age, and maybe your age, you're not whoa, terribly whoa, whoa. old. Easy. You're, you're easy. a little old, but you're approaching ARP status soon. Uh, wow. Get that card in the mail soon, maybe five years. I don't know. I think they send it at 50 now, so you're getting close. <laughs> uh, I got I got another 21 or so years. But listen, it's something about Miami. And first of all, let's hope everyone's okay. You know, hopefully it's only one player. Other guys don't have it. That's first and foremost. Second, this could be, for the short term, a benefit for the Mets in terms of how their pitching lines up. And you can disagree with me, but we were going to see Porcello, Gazelman, Oswalt in the Subway Series this weekend. Now there's a chance the Mets don't have to use Oswalt. They might still because we'll talk about it here in a second, the schedule that lines up, but it could benefit the Mets and it could also benefit the Yankees because they just got swept by the Rays in three games. They've looked awful and they're, you know, it gives Aaron Judge a couple extra days to get, you know, 100%, even though he says he already is. So in some ways it gives these teams some rest, but really this next week with double headers potentially stacked up, it might not be a benefit. Yeah, so what that the season is only 60 games and people forget that when it comes to baseball, you're playing 13, 14 games in a row um, and you're traveling to three, four different cities to do these things. And it's a lot of wear and tear on the body. There's a lot of wear and tear. These athletes who had to start and stop and then start up again. And you're seeing a lot of these teams dealing with injuries. You're dealing with COVID. You're dealing with uh, pitching staffs who, uh, I mean, good thing that they have that 30-man roster, which has now been dropped down. When you see these things and you're seeing these taxi squads and, and all the moves that are being made, it makes you really appreciate the logistical nightmare that is baseball during the season of 162 games where you're trying to play it out for a marathon instead of for a sprint. We talked about this the other day about all these games matter so much. They're, they almost matter four times as much as a normal game did because you were like, oh, it's OK. They lost to this team or they lost two out of three. They lost the series. They're fine. They play them again, you know, 17 more times or 16 more times. You don't have that luxury this year. And for the Mets, this was a stretch where playing the first place, and I say that with quotation marks, the first place Marlins, who were uh, you know a team that's being put together with duct tape and Band-Aids as it is with uh, all the uh, A-ball players that they need to fill out the roster with everything they've gone through. And then you are won three out of four thus far, looking to sweep. You were able to sweep. And again, you're two and a half games back now. Keep going and moving up in the standings and and putting yourself in good position. Then you have the Yankees and uh, the Yankees are reeling, which would have been a great time to get them while they were on the ropes. And with all the injuries that they're dealing with, a time to go in there and take care of business. Both teams get a chance to reset, maybe possibly set up some better pitching matches, like we said, for the uh, starters. Let's see how long it takes to restart just playing baseball again for the Mets. And uh, that's the thing that I'm concerned most about is no more positive of tests and once these guys get back to business uh, then we'll worry about winning ball games. Yeah, and four days seems to be the precedent. So let's look into schedule here and try to break down. It seems like the most logical way to do this right now, both the Mets and Yankees are off on Monday the 24th. You would think they would play a doubleheader on Monday at City Field. The Mets will play the Marlins at City Field for three times, and that is their final three games against the Marlins this season. So they have to squeeze that one game. What seems like the right move, again, this is if no more positive 
positive test, no more stops in play, is to make another doubleheader Mets-Marlins on Thursday. So you don't want the Mets having a doubleheader again on Tuesday or Wednesday. You got to give them a couple of days off there. Just not off, but just one game. It seems like Monday Mets-Yankees doubleheader, Thursday Mets-Marlins doubleheader, then that wraps up your season against the Marlins. And then pick a day, probably Sunday, do another doubleheader uh, against the Yankees, this time at Yankee Stadium next weekend. Does that make sense to you and spreading out the doubleheaders to make the schedule work? It does, and I think the teams are going to have to have that flexibility because it's not about the gate. There's no fans in the stands. But there is, you know, you want to play as many home games as possible. But I don't know if that really matters this year i don't know if anything feels like it's a home game but with the weird way that the the season has already unfolded for a lot of these teams um you know the cardinals i think it was the reds that had the scare last week um so we're looking at teams being able to not just you know you're, you're trying to get all these games in and you're sacrificing a lot of things remember seven inning double headers that's a game changer in itself as somebody who played in the minor leagues where we had seven inning double headers and that was for the sake of saving some arms and being able to play these games um and not you know a full day like that where you're playing you're at the field for more than you know 12 13 hours it's a it's a bit much especially when you're doing it multiple times in a week but they've got to find a way to get these games in and i think that matters more so than the uh you know are we playing them at home or away or whatever have you so i think as long as the teams are flexible with that and you can get the ball games in and the you know everything that counts in the standings i don't know if uh, somebody's gonna say oh well they played one more game at home than we did this is a a year of survival uh, quite honestly and and even though they expanded playoffs and they're they're trying to do everything to make it a season worth playing um and uh, again i said from the beginning when we we first got taken off the air what the logistical nightmare of doing this reboot was going to be like and it's it's coming to fruition and they're doing the best they can to contain it and and put forth a good enough product that you can say that hey baseball came back this year and and we we are seeing some fun baseball i won't lie i'm 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 seeing some some fun baseball i'm not really sure if i like all the grand slams by the uh, san diego padres as a pitcher but hey listen you're seeing teams go out there there are guys who would never have a chance to play in the big leagues and are getting an opportunity because of this and you know good for them but it is a little bit watered down when it comes to especially on the pitching side uh, of things um, where you're seeing kids who were in a ball last year with a 60 RA are now, you know, trying to be, uh, you know, staff uh, aces for a team like the Marlins and, and others. I don't think there's anybody who can name all five starters for any team, even their own team that they root for right now in baseball. Now there is another way figgy. I'm looking at the schedule now that seem if you want to avoid the double headers and taxing arms of the Mets, potentially having three double headers in a week, it seems like the logical move might be this. The Mets and Yankees are both off on Thursday, September 3rd. The Yankees are home on the second and the Mets are home the next day on the fourth. They'll be coming from Baltimore on the second so that actually seems like the best move you're going to lose the off day but guess what you won't have three double headers in a week which would be a lot so I think that's the way to go for this then the Mets don't lose out on the home game so I think that's what baseball might end up doing so that would mean Monday double header City Field probably Thursday double header Mets Marlins City Field and then Yankee Stadium you play the three like normal and you make up that third City Field Subway Series game on Thursday September 3rd so Boom! Pay- 
pay me now, Major League Baseball. <laughs> I just set up the whole damn schedule. Well, that's that's what these guys did in advance was set up so that you were playing regionally outside of your division, right? What does that mean? Is that you can get on a bus and go over to uh, the Bronx and play these games. Or, you know, you can go on a bus or train easily to get to Philadelphia and to Washington. You know, Miami is a four-hour plane ride, uh, and, and that's not a, a, a huge deal. So I think that's where the, the brilliance of making sure that it was a regional outside of your uh, division and made it for easier travel just in case you had to make up these games. And that's why nobody really panicked in Major League Baseball when the first outbreak hit and they had to postpone those games. Remember, what the Marlins have? Three games for the first two weeks of the season. Uh, the Cardinals had like five games for the first two weeks of the season. So you, know, you would look at that and normally be like, oh my God, how are you going to do this? How you, they, they had a plan in place and so far they've been able to carry out that plan. And the Marlins are 18 games. The Mets are at 26. So the Marlins have a lot of work to do. The Marlins now in second place the Braves are first at 14-11 the Mets uh, despite all the struggles I mean 12 and 14 is just two and a half back they're just a game back of those Marlins for that automatic playoff second place so as much as we've worried as much as it's been injuries they're right in the thick of things and if all is okay that seems like the best plan as the Yankees uh, will already be in New York and the Mets will be coming to New York to finish that series up the third and hopefully get the double header in Monday and you know Monday is still TBD because if there are more guys then maybe they don't play Monday so we'll see what happens but in other news what we did talk about on the original version of this podcast was Seth Lugo's move to the rotation he's made 31 career starts 18 in 2017 he's had some success it's a move the Mets have been forced into with the doubleheaders coming up. Maybe you avoid Oswalt's route by leaving Mats in the rotation for another start and then moving into the bullpen. But you as a guy who moved from rotation to bullpen, what's your thoughts on Mats and maybe having more success as a reliever versus starter, which we've seen him do in the past and have a little bit of success as a reliever? Yeah, he's been able to kind of hit this reset button in recent memory, even last year, where they threw him in the bullpen on your normal bullpen days where you're, you know, you have you throw a little side. And when you throw a side, there's nobody standing in there. It's not the same. Because what happens for Mats is not his stuff. People that have seen him have seen him throw on the side and throw bullpens. Yes, he has plus stuff across the board. But what you're talking about is the difference of, of him being Sandy Koufax in those bullpen sessions. And then when you get, you're getting an average, below average lefty who not a lot of teams seem to fear. Uh, you're not seeing that same kind of quality that you hear about. Even Jacob deGrom raved about the work that Matt's was doing and how good he looked. Yes, in practice, everyone looks phenomenal. It's like batting practice hitters. You see these batting practice hitters, you go there and they're hitting bombs all over the place. And then they step to the plate and that 89 mile an hour slider disappears on them and they swing at everything. So this is a chance for him to, again, hit the reset button, try to get the mental focus. And by being a reliever, you're going to have to have that mental focus. But I'm looking at for Matt's is that they, he was praised from the beginning with this bulldog mentality with this. So again, he was Sandy Koufax as advertised. And what we're looking at right now is he's Oliver Perez in a Met uniform, I should say, because that's what he is. You don't know when you're going to put him in a game. When are you going to put him in a game? Tie ball game, bases loaded? No, you're not going to put him in that kind of pressure situation. So now he becomes the long man. 
right? And with these double headers, seven inning games, he's not going to pitch in a seven inning game to, to get out a key lefty. That's Justin Wilson's job. You know, that's uh, chasing Shreve who looked outstanding the other day, you know, striking out five in two innings, making it look easy. Right now, Steven Matz is your Oliver Perez. And that's scary to think. And for him, how mental he is, he's got to find confidence somewhere. So they're going to have to get him in an opportunity where it's, it's tough to do when you're going to the bullpen if you're the long man, because that means a starter got knocked around. You're in a, a no-win situation. You're down five runs. But that might be what he needs to have no pressure on him to get – but we're talking about a guy who's had five years in the big leagues who's pitched in the World Series. This sh- shouldn't be where he's at right now. It seems like his first start that I was there, that doubleheader where he drove in all the runs, the Grandpa Mats, it seems like a long time ago. And you keep mentioning Oliver Perez, who, by the way, is still in the league, and he has a .93 ERA so far with Cleveland this year. Remember, he got mad at his teammates for you know going against protocol, and the word is that none of the Mets went against protocol, so we won't we won't go to the Borgata and bet on who uh, broke protocol. Was it Robinson Cano? Who did it? Uh, we won't go against that, but Oliver Perez, bro, I mean, this guy's been in the league since 2002. I mean, he has reinvented the wheel as a reliever and a guy who doesn't have to get many outs, and while he's still gotten rocked a bit of as a reliever, these last couple of years, he's kind of changed his game around, and he was, you know, you were in the league when he was in the prime of his career as a starter, making 36 milli from the Mets. Yeah, when I, I got the, the fortune to see Oliver Perez as a young player. We traded for him in Pittsburgh and he came over with Jason Bay for Brian oh, Giles. <laughs> so we had Jason Bay and Oliver Perez for Brian Giles. Jason Bay went on to win Rookie of the Year and Oliver Perez, I'll never forget it because I played catch with him the very first day that we, we got him from San Diego. So I'm playing catch with this guy. He's literally throwing the ball 70, 75 miles an hour max the whole time we're playing catch. And I'm like, wow, we just got a soft tossing lefty for an all-star outfielder. I was like, this is all this kid is? Wow, all right, well, I guess, because here I am, I was still trying to be a crack the rotation. I was the long man with the Pirates, and I was like, oh, he, we traded a guy away. Now we got another pitcher. I'm like, oh, now I'm really screwed. I'm never going to pitch. So he goes out to pitch his first start. No exaggeration. So I'm the long man. So I let the starter kind of get going a little bit and uh, sign autographs down on the line. And then I go walking in to back him up to see if he's okay and, and be ready just in case something happens. You know, strange things have happened. Guys have gotten sick. Guys have, you know, pulled something. And then I got to get ready for to start the game. So I go walking over there and I remember because in Pittsburgh is very narrow to get by um, while the pitcher's warming up if he's on the, the left mound. And all of a sudden there's this thunderous clap that he releases the ball. And I'm like, what the hell was that? And the bullpen coach looks at me and he's like, electric stuff. And I'm like, this is the same guy who was playing catch with me two days ago and barely could reach me. Like, I, I, I couldn't understand it. He got out there. His first pitch, I remember his first pitch was a fastball, 97 miles an hour strike. And then he would get two strikes on people and he would do what was called the praying mantis. He would straighten out one of his legs and he dipped down real low. Then he just stare like through your soul and he would drop down with this nasty slider. He would stay up top and throw a filthy fastball on the outside black. And this guy was unhittable for that one season. And I was like, wow, what an electric arm. And then the man got him. And he struggled mightily. It's kind of that Matt Harvey thing where his confidence got rocked. He got shook, wasn't able to stop walking people. And I got to pitch a lot with the Mets because of him. Um, so I always thank him for that. And then you go and you look and he was out of 
baseball for a little bit and then had to convert himself to a reliever. And he's had success doing that and a long career of doing that. Most guys fall off and they're off that top of that mountain and they're not willing to sacrifice and put in the work and do all those things. So to Oliver Perez, I tip my cap because he's still around the league and still being a, 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 a guy that, again, 0.9 ERA. I don't care what league you're playing in. That's yeah, real damn good. I didn't think this much on a COVID show we'd be talking Ali Perez, but listen, man, <laughs> he's still in the league. In 07, 08, he was solid. 08, he walked 105 guys, but he had 34 starts. I mean, how often do you see a guy make 34 starts in today's day and age? And he had 3, 5, 6, and 29 starts in 27, the year of the collapse. Ali Perez. No, he had good on. stuff, man. He had. He, when you talk about a guy with electric stuff. He had electric stuff. He just The uh, command was him, the issue, yeah. The, the command was the issue, and, and I think more so than anything it just got to the point where the league starts making adjustments and realize they don't have to swing at every pitch and what would freak him out is if a, the first bat of the game if the first bat of the game stood with the bat on his shoulder and he would fire six pitches all over the zone thinking he's got to get a guy to swing and miss and that guy would be the sacrificial lamb hey let's see what oliver perez has today he's either gonna throw three right down the middle or he's gonna throw six out of the zone and you're gonna be able to walk if you don't swing and that's what it would happen to ollie he would spiral out of control the same way that Matt's does and that's why i made that analogy of putting those two together i need to see a guy who's more jonathan niece as a stepping stone to getting him to a lefty credibility where it's uh oh wow this guy we got to face max too that's what you want the rest of the league to be saying and speaking of lefties and ali perez in the rotation this holdover could give the mets the chance to get david peterson back this week or for the subway series at yankee stadium over the weekend next week uh, his MRI came back clean uh michael waka did have a bullpen since 59 pitches they could have him this week as well. So while this holdover sucks and you hope everyone's okay, the Mets could get some arms back this week that they desperately need. And their rotation, if healthy, a lot of ifs, looks a lot better when you're thinking of DeGrom, Waka, Porcello, Lugo, and Peterson. That's a pretty respectable rotation that can get the Mets to the playoffs. Yeah, if Peterson has to take more time than you may see Mats go back after maybe an outing uh, as a reliever. Again, those things, you can't predict them. You can't plan them because if, you know, the team's winning, you're not going to exactly throw Mats into that situation. So I, I look for the team to have kind of kid gloves a little bit with Peterson, um, even though it's not structural, uh, mental side of that is a sigh of relief for a guy like Peterson because you wake up not feeling 100%. If they tell you there's nothing structurally wrong, okay, you take some anti-inflammatories for the IL time, which is 10 days. And then when you come back, hopefully he's not going to miss much time. I know they don't want him to pick up a ball for as long as possible to let that inflammation die down. Then he's going to probably feel you know as good as ever. And I li- I've loved what I've seen from Peterson. I-, I really have. He's been a guy who's pitched with all three pitches, has shown the ability to get strikeouts and put away guys with two strikes. Um, I've seen far too many mistakes with two strikes from a lot of pitching this year, and especially um, from Mets pitching, where Peterson looked like he had a really good feel uh, for a command of all three pitches and uh, his uh, ability to go through a lineup at least two times and then turn the ball over to the bullpen has been successful. It's just so different, Figgy, this year with rehabbing guys because you're more urgent to rush guys back a little bit because of the shortened season and because of the situation they're in without Syndergaard, with Stroman opting out, with all these guys out is you're kind of like, all right, in a normal season, we're going to let him rest a few weeks. But now you're like, all right, can you uh, get that shoulder healthy and get back pretty quick? And uh, the Mets are in a tough spot here. And, you know, this was supposed to be our Subway Series preview show. But we might have to hold that off for Monday's episode. But 
We did talk some Subway series, and we'll talk some more, hopefully, for Monday of some of our favorite memories. We did talk about the 2000 World Series Subway series with old lefty Glendon Rush here at next, right here on Amazing But True from the New York Post. member of that 2000 memorable Mets team. Old lefty, Glenn and Rush joining Jake and Figgy here on Amazing But True. Talking to you about the Subway series, and I'll get right into it because I never got a chance to experience it for myself. That's one of my biggest regrets was never being able to, as a Met, going over to Yankee Stadium and pitching in Yankee Stadium. I'm going to bring you to July 8th against the Yankees. Talk to me about that outing and how you felt going into that game. I felt good. I mean, are, are we talking about the, the day-night, the split doubleheader, the, the Mike Austin game? Yeah, I mean, it, it was an odd day because I showed up at the ballpark at Shea a little bit late for the 1 o'clock game and drove into a full parking lot and a full crowd and people there and then kind of hung out and sat around and waited to uh, take the bus over to Yankee Stadium. It was so cool to be a part of that series anytime I got a chance. And and, uh, and then, of course, that became a pretty famous game that we've all seen a bunch of times, uh, me versus Clemens and Clemens hitting Piazza and, and the drama that followed and kind of carried into the whole season. I always remember that, that two-stadium uh, one-day doubleheader was one of my favorite memories as a Mets fan as a kid, just going to both of those games and, you know, making the trip over. I get my Amore pizza after game. One, game one, heading over. What was it? Yankee during the day and Shea at night, I think it was. It was the other way around. Other it, was, way. it was Shea, yeah, Shea afternoon, and then we went to Yankee Stadium at night. Right, okay. Um, but there's just it was so many memories. And that 2000 World Series, Glenn, and just take us through the hype that year and going into that that series. I mean, I talked about it with Jeff Nelson earlier, and the, the Mets didn't – sell the tickets for the World Series that year until after they knew they were in. So there were so many Yankee fans there, and it was almost 50-50 split that series that those games at Shea kind of felt like you were at Yankee Stadium, too. Take us through that atmosphere and that the whole the city on fire in that World Series. city was on fire. That is probably the best way to describe it. There was excitement in the air all throughout the city. It was so much fun to be a part of. I, I look back, and, you know, obviously the only regret I have is we didn't get a chance to score some runs later in those games and, and win that series. Their bullpen killed us. They uh, they held us pretty much scoreless throughout. The the series itself, having all those Yankee fans at, at Shea was <laughs> pretty crazy. Just going back and, and thinking about how loud it was there. and That, that place was rocking. And then you go, of course, over to Yankee Stadium, and there's very few Met fans, uh, probably just our four families in there taking the abuse from the uh, Yankee fans. But, uh, no, it was it was awesome, and, and I was so um, thankful to be a part of it. And, and one of my favorite memories, obviously, in, in my career is, is getting to pitch. And I pitched in three out of the five games in that series out of the bullpen. Yeah, and that's one of the things that you were. You were that guy that can do both, uh, be able to start and go – you know, as deep as you can, but at the same time, have that rubber type arm and be able to be available uh, to go out and get a, a, a tough lefty. So I I, I I looked up to you for a long time when we played together in Milwaukee. And I remember laughing because you would always downplay just, you know, you're in the major leagues and the whole time. I'm like, so, you know, what, what's your plans for next year? And he goes, I think I'm going to be pumping gas in Jersey. I think that's what it looks like. And Glendon always quick with a quip and, and just keep you laughing the whole time. He's, he's so mild mannered, but to pitch in that kind of atmosphere and that kind of series, I, I mean, that's one of the things that as a player, if you never got to experience the playoffs, that's got to be pretty close to playoff atmosphere, doesn't it? 
Oh yeah, there's no doubt about it. When you when you um, those crosstown rivalries, especially early on uh, when it was my rookie year was '97, and that was the first year of interleague play. So so like the Royals Cardinals I experienced then, and then and then I get to the Subway Series, and then when I end up uh, being in Chicago, seeing the the Cubs White Sox games, all those were yeah they they felt like playoff atmosphere. I, I think it's tapered off a little bit. I know this year's going to be completely different with no fans, but but I feel like over time, you know, we're we're, we're 23 years I guess into it into interleague play that it's, it's kind of tapered off a little bit. But I would say that those two stick out to me the most: the Cubs White Sox and the and the Yankees mess are still heated rivalries and those cross town series during the season are, are huge so you can talk to this to us is as a player as a met how did that feel for you guys in the clubhouse to go playing against the yankees was there an added element in there because they were the yankees i always felt like that and maybe that's because i was a little bit younger than, than a lot of the guys in the clubhouse but to me yeah anytime we played the yankees and the Braves, that was the other team that stuck out to me. Because when I got traded there at the very end of 99, I was kind of a spectator watching that last three-week run um, into the playoffs for the Mets. And those Braves games were like, that's what it was all about, man. When we were playing the Braves, it was, it was how do we get Chipper out? How do we beat the Braves? How, you know, and, and that rivalry was, was fierce. So I, I think in the clubhouse, absolutely, you get up for those big series and those big games and especially when playoff implications are on the line and that that's back in the days when you were hitting i was just looking at your stats and pretty incredible you were a terrible hitter in 2000 as a pitcher but then i don't know if you took steroids in 2002 uh glendon <laughs> but you had 19 hits and 66 at bats with a homer and eight rbis you could be on the mets bench right now <laughs> you know you know what i did i started leg kicking i uh, <laughs> uh like my second year in uh, in new york i you know i couldn't I just couldn't get my timing down, and, and you go through all that time being in the minor leagues and then in the American League, and uh, it took me some time. But, yeah, I started leg kicking and got my timing down, and, just you know, I worked at it. I, I took pride in being a good bunter and being able to swing the bat, and, yeah, I had, kind of had a, a dream season that year in Milwaukee. I think I ended up hitting, like, 288, so and uh, finished third out of all the pitchers that year. So that was pretty cool. Not only pretty cool, but I got to see it firsthand because he would put on a display in batting practice. And he had a certain model of bat, uh, B363, right? Was that it, the 363? B345. A B345, yes. Huge barrel on this thing. It was almost like that red wiffle bat, wiffle ball bat that when you were a kid. So if you were a good hitter, you used the yellow one because it was thin, but you had the red one that was the bigger one. That's what this bat looked like. But the thing was is that this man would make so, such solid contact that he was an option on the bench for our manager, Jerry Royster. He would look down the bench, and depending on what the score was, it was either Lenny Harris, all-time pinch hit leader, or Glendon Rush. They're both standing there with bats, and Glendon would follow Lenny around, and he's holding the bat next to him like, him, me, him, me? Which, which guy do you want in this situation? And, of course, Lenny took the big at bat. Glendon comes up, you know, and, and when the game's, you know, lopsided and they don't want to waste in a bat and they want to turn, not let the pitcher hit. Glendon got all those mop-up at bats. And so the leg kick got a chance to go into full swing. But I remember Lenny Harris even took over and, and got the same model bat that Glendon had because he liked the size of that barrel. And so you could see that making adjustments, even as a pitcher, a National League pitcher, you have to do that where that was a lost art before this year with the universal DH. Guys don't work on that stuff anymore. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a huge part of it. And you, you, you can, you know, if you shift a game one way or the other, being able to get a bunt down or drive a run in. And, and, you know, the funny story about those bats is those were given to me by Robin Ventura back when I was struggling. 
he came walking in one day and put two of those bats on, on my chair at Shea and said, try these out, see what you think. And and I believe the story is, I believe that's Harold Baines' model from back in the day. You know, use that, the letter and then the number behind it and, and, and the guys that used it. So so I'm pretty sure that's Harold Baines' model. So um, obviously a good left-handed uh, bat with a, with a leg kick too. So yeah, thank you, Robin, for putting those on my chair. Well, glad you had 19 <laughs> hits in 2002. Figgy had 20 his whole career. So, whoa, 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 whoa. Easy, easy. <laughs> a lot less that's at still bat. Good. Hey, that's good. Anytime you can brag on your hitting, um, especially now that we're retired, we can we can talk as much smack as we want to anybody. And m- the majority of the people we talk to have never had one major league hit. So we, we got them beat. Yeah, so in that same season in Milwaukee, I remember I got pounded. I give a three-run uh, home run early to the Braves, and I'm pitching against Greg Maddox. And I'm like, all right, this is going to be an early shower day. I just, you know, I, I got to figure it out. I didn't give up another hit until like the seventh inning. But for some reason, and maybe it was a rookie mistake by Jerry Royster, he wanted to give me an opportunity. I came up in like the fifth inning. We had two guys on. And so they walk the catcher to get to me and he left me in there. It was only the fifth inning and he left me in there to hit. And I get a base hit off Greg Maddox with the bases loaded, drive in two runs so that we took the lead 4-3 all of a sudden. And it was one of the greatest moments of my life, you know, and, and it was probably a rookie manager mistake, but to leave me in there because it was so early in the game, he didn't go to a pinch hitter because he could have went to Glendon for sure. And I got a chance to face Maddox and do that. So those little things, like you said, if you can handle the bat, lay down bunts, sacrifice bunts, which were so huge in our day, because all you wanted to do was lay down a good bunt, move that guy over and keep the line moving for the for the next guy to, to try and drive him in. That's only going to help you have a chance to win, even though wins don't matter anymore. For us back then, I, I think if a, 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 anybody picked up a stat sheet and said, oh, well, this guy won 10 games in the big leagues last year, you know, we give him a shot going into next year. That was the important part, and that all had to do with being able to handle the bat as well. So, Glendon Rush was a guy that you modeled yourself after, especially in the batting cage when it came to uh, trying to make sure that you can be an option to do something else. Because in Milwaukee, hey, it was like open tryouts. I, I had to, I got a chance to steal a couple of bases even, but of course they swung and fouled it off, and I had to get my my fat butt back to first base. <laughs> yeah, we we did it all. So we uh, we had to we had to figure out a way to win somehow, any any way we could every day. Glendon, last one for you. Again, on that 2000 team, um, obviously, so many memories that year. The 10-run inning from Piazza capped off the three-run homer against the Braves. And Did Bobby V have a message going into the World Series? Was there a speech that he made to try to fire you guys up? I mean, all those games were close. You lost in five games, but they were all close. Was there any kind of message he preached on you guys? Well, I think he, he instilled in us that, he felt we were the best team going into that series, and 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 we felt we were the best team. I, I know that the Yankees were in the midst of winning two in a row, and you know eventually going to the World Series four times in a row after you know they went again in one. But we were very very confident in our pitching staff and and our lineup going into that series that that we were going to win and. It didn't end up that way, but but I'll tell you what we we uh, we had all the confidence in the world, and I, I I know for a fact we weren't intimidated at all going into Yankee Stadium games one and two. We you know we should have won game one, and and like you said, all those games were tight. We lost four games, I think, by a total of five runs, and and, and we had one kind of uh, red herring where we scored 
I think three runs maybe off of Jay Payton Homer off uh, off Rivera. But other than that, their bullpen didn't give up anything, and and they just they outpitched us and had a couple clutch hits and beat us in extra innings in that first game. That was a tough one. Yeah, well, we look back twenty years, you know, somewhat fondly at, at a memorable team, and you know your best season. As a starting pitcher in the big leagues, 11 wins, 4 ERA. Glendon Rush, follow him on Twitter, at Glendon Rush. Glendon, we appreciate you coming on the show, man. Stay safe, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, guys. And that seals the deal for episode 20, a.k.a. the Pete Alonzo, a.k.a. the Hojo or Sean Green or Jeremy Burnett's episode of Amazing But True, our New York Mets podcast from the New York Post. And who knows more about sealing the deal than Jake. Thank you again for producing the show. Subscribe to Amazing But True wherever you get your podcasts. If you're using Apple Podcasts, please rate us five stars and write a nice review. We appreciate your support. For Nelson Figueroa, I'm Jake Brown. We'll be back on Monday looking ahead to whatever the Mets schedule holds next week. Enjoy your weekend, folks. Wear a mask. Stay safe.